Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everybody. You know, I was really pleased to see uh, Tom Leppert's uh, picture on, on DCEO as the CEO of the year. I was also glad to see him retire and become mayor because he was the, the, the uh, head of Turner Construction, which was one of our competitors. <laughs> but uh, it really does uh, give me pleasure to be here with you today. I'd like to thank the uh, World Affairs Council and the Dallas Friday Group for inviting me here today. For more than 50 years, as you may know, these groups have provoked thoughtful and stimulating discussion and attracted a wide array of speakers who I am very privileged to join. I also applaud the uh, Council's International Education Initiative, the need for which and the benefits that we absolutely see are more evident each day. You know, Warren Buffett once told a story about a man who had an ailing horse, and he explained to his veterinarian that Sometimes this horse walks just fine, and sometimes he limps terribly. What should I do? Well, the veterinarian, being the very sanguine individual he was, said, well, when he's walking just fine, sell him. <laughs> and and that's, that, the message there is timing is very important. When I accepted this invitation to speak earlier this year, actually, Little did I appreciate how pertinent this topic would be in December. In short, I want to tell you today how much I believe that it is, this is inextricably linked between bribery and corruption and how closely it's related today to this global financial crisis. As you know, the crisis we're in has spawned a huge loss of confidence and trust. That's a loss of trust in public as well as private institutions. And I would say especially it's been focused on the regulatory, the commercial, and the financial institutions. There's so many Americans who have lost homes, seen their 401k plans, or their accounts tumble. People have lost their jobs, and we're seeing that continue. They're wondering, in many cases, how do I even survive? They feel an acute sense of betrayal. Many fear that their retirement is jeopardized along with their own future and their children's. And so in an era of globalization, these concerns and these resulting feelings of betrayal extend well beyond our borders. In fact, many of the world's leaders and their populations blame the Western nations in general and America specifically. Many see themselves as victims of foreign investors who fueled an emerging market boom and are now, in fact, pulling money out of these emerging markets to meet liquidity needs at home. Given an interesting perspective, the economics Nobel laureate and former chair of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors, Joseph Stiglitz, wrote, as strange as it seems, money, in fact, is leaving developing countries that didn't cause these problems and are going to the U.S., which did. Many critics, some old and some new, proclaim that Western countries 
in fact, cannot keep preaching to the world about democracy and capitalism while our own house is so wildly out of order. And herein lies my concern, particularly on this subject. Um, in times like this, the question was asked of me here at the table, what, what happens to corruption in times like this? Well, there is no doubt in my mind it goes up. There's a more fertile playing ground. And in fact, the fight against it loses credibility in many cases. And I think that's a serious situation. Leaders here and elsewhere clearly have got to restore confidence, and in cap in both in the business and in the markets and in capitalism in general, not to mention existing or new financial institutions. They have to do so on a bedrock of integrity and transparency. And that, in turn, requires addressing this ancillary issue that I regard as the near pandemic of global corruption. As you know, corruption has defied the abuse of entrusted power for, for private gain. It has been with us for centuries. And unfortunately, in some countries, payments to government officials have long been considered an essential lubricant to business. My belief, however, is that corruption need not be one of those things like death and taxes that's integral to our lives and inescapable. We can reduce it substantially if we make the effort. Not only has it been around a long time, it is massive in scale. The World Bank estimates that the total volume of bribes paid annually at over $1 trillion, more than 5% of, of the world's global GDP. Corruption on a worldwide basis adds up to 10% to the total cost of doing business and up to 25% of the procurement of contracts in developing countries. Moving a business from a country with a low level of, of corruption to a country with medium or high levels of corruption can be equivalent to a 20% tax on foreign businesses. What's more, corruption affects national security, often supporting regressive societies that breed discontent and terrorism. It depletes national wealth as scarce resources are directed to lower priority projects. The World Bank reports, in fact, again, that widespread corruption can cause the growth rate of a company to be from one-half to one percentage point lower than that of a similar country with little corruption. Further, it inhibits democracy and the rule of law. It undermines trust in public institutions and leadership, and it encourages the exploitation of natural resources. So, Neither corruption nor the perception of corruption is limited to developing countries, however. A judicial watch Zogby International poll in mid-October here in this country found that 8 in 10 Americans believe that political corruption is one of the main reasons behind the current U.S. financial crisis. And finally, of course, there is bribery's substantial cost to business. Ethical companies, in fact, pay dearly for refusing to engage in bribery and the unfair competition that results from it. It's hard to know exactly how much business is lost, but it is believed to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. The bond rating agency Standard & Poor's estimates that the likelihood of an investor losing his entire investment within five years lies somewhere between 80 to 100 percent in countries such as Colombia, Iraq, and Libya, more than 60 percent in Egypt and Syria, and somewhere around 50% in Algeria and other surrounding countries. 
Last year, PwC International surveyed CEOs and found that 45% of the respondents had not entered into a specific market or into a particular geography because of corruption risks. Almost 40% reported that their company had lost a bid because of corrupt officials. And a similar number said that their competitors, in fact, do pay bribes. Almost three-quarters of these CEOs believe that a better understanding of corruption would help them compete more effectively. So I guess what I'm saying, there really is a problem here. And although it's just the tip of the iceberg, opportunities for companies facing prosecution and other legal action as governments stiffen is now more likely than before. These penalties, in fact, reflect the fact that public sector agencies today do take corruption more seriously than they might have in the past. The single most important change in that has been the globalization of anti-corruption standards. As recently as 1998, before the OECD convention, few industrialized countries even outlawed foreign bribes. Some even encouraged it by allowing companies to treat such payments as tax-deductible expenses. When the UN Convention was ratified just last year, it contained the very first universal commitment to tough anti-corruption standards. Sometimes these situations make headlines. Ted Stevens, a powerful senator from Alaska, was recently convicted on seven counts of making false statements on his Senate financial disclosure forms. The company that was associated with that was, in fact, in the construction business. In what may well be the largest corporate bribes for business case in history, the European engineering and technology company Siemens acknowledged that up to 1.3 billion euros has been spent in bribes to win foreign contracts. Unfortunately, at Fleur, we know firsthand how crazy some of these incidents can be. We run into many cases where our employees are extorted, threatened, and in fact offered bribes in the course of their business. It's not a good situation, but it's one that, we, that exists and we address in our, in our anti-corruption efforts. When I became Fleur CEO in 2002, I had already formed my own strong convictions about the global corruption that affects many of our businesses and governments. Our more than 41,000 employees are in fact located in 25 countries across six continents. We build more than 1,000 projects every year. And we were getting sick and tired of losing business to overseas competitors who in fact played by different rules. With Fleur, I also worked for a company that in fact had a long history of approaching such issues proactively, doing more than the minimum just to get by. Thus, when I was invited to chair that engineering and construction group at the World Economic Forum, I considered it the ideal opportunity to take on this anti-corruption challenge. So in 2003, this topic was elevated during a meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Working collaboratively with several other industries, we created a multinational task force with participating companies from all of the continents and developed and adopted benchmark business principles that address ethical conduct regarding bribes and the facilitation payments that, that accompany them. It also touched on political and charitable contributions as well as gifts and sponsorships. Every signatory company agrees to maintain a zero tolerance policy towards corruption and to develop and implement a broad-based anti-corruption program 
to guide the behavior of its employees. The result was, we call it Partnering Against Corruption Initiative, or PACHI for short. And it remains today the only global anti-corruption initiative driven by the private sector. Today, we have more than 140 signatory companies from the global energy, engineering and construction, mining, metals, professional services, food and beverage, com consumer goods, chemicals, logistics and transport, insurance, and healthcare. Because we believe that companies should not only sign the principles, but in fact act on them, we also have Pachi members receiving the benefit of an array of useful services, including practical tips, sharing of best practices, communication and training materials, as well as a developed self-assessment tool to measure your own progress on the adherence to anti-corruption principles and practices. In addition, Pachi has been collaborating with the World Bank and also with regional development banks to require bidders on large contracts to demonstrate their anti-corruption credentials. Bidders must certify that they have programs in place to address corruption and that they will not pay bribes. Ultimately, bidders do have to submit anti-corruption or ethics policies with their bids and verify that they are doing what they say. In other words, they have to be accountable. We hope that one day every company will be required to submit anti-corruption policies with their bids, not just to all development banks, but with their bids to companies who, like Fleur and others in Pachi, have committed to these principles. Fleur has also invested heavily in the development of proprietary training for our employees to prepare them for the day when someone openly or subtly demands a bribe in one form or another. We make sure that they know the law as well as our own policies and principles and that they have people to whom they can turn to for help. We also monitor the frequency of illegal or inappropriate incidences by encouraging employees or subcontractors to report them and to contact our audit department and to do spot checks in an effort to uncover corrupt behavior. Now, a number of factors have brought bribery and corruption out of the darkness and into the spotlight. These certainly include increased media coverage, more frequent and well-attended international meetings, and organizations that are devoted to eradicating this scourge. One such organization that I'd like to highlight is Transparency International, with over 90 local chapters. It leads a worldwide coalition against corruption. TI, as they're called, argues that this financial crisis was in least a part triggered by a lack of transparency and failures of corporate governance, including bribery and corruption. TI links corruption with many other global program, uh, problems and programs. Just last month, it called on the group of G20 in industrialized nations to ensure that transparency, integrity, and public accountability become a foundation of a reformed financial system. TI also urged governments, business, and civil society to consider and to integrate the corruption factor into solutions that ensure a cleaner, fairer, and healthier world. When I got into the effort of Pachi, TI had just put out their Transparency International Perception Survey on corruption. In it, they named construction the second worst industry in the world, second only to arms dealers. <laughs> that did help get a lot of people on the, on the team. Now, we'll be hearing a lot more about these kind of connections, 
Several weeks ago, the World Economic Forum hosted a very large-scale brainstorming session in Dubai, assembling 700 most knowledgeable experts on 68 issues, and three people from Fleur were at that meeting. This summit provided a framework for discussions at, this, at the forum's annual meeting in Davos this next month. The theme of that meeting in Davos is going to be shaping the post-crisis world. Now, the report from Dubai makes for very sober reading. And in fact, it echoes some of the points that I've made earlier in my remarks. For example, the flood of governance scandals has weakened markets and eroded trust, and it's threatening a protectionist and regulatory backlash. The current financial crisis also is likely to cause and increase illicit forms of trade because of increased pressure to lower prices and greater desperation of individuals in affected economies and businesses. Democracy around the world, in this sense, is in danger. Fairly stable authoritarian regimes now argue more successfully than before that democracy is an unnecessary luxury. And today's increased interdependence is especially apparent when crises erupt, perhaps arguing for new institutions. The report is also somewhat of a primer on how today's global issues are increasingly interconnected. This interconnections are one more example of how complex the world is we live in today. It reminds me of a comment from leadership guru Peter Senge, who said, perhaps for the first time in history, humankind has the capacity to create far more information than anyone can absorb, to foster far greater interdependency than people can manage, and to accelerate change faster than people's ability to keep pace. I hope you agree with me now that corruption is a massive problem and that fighting it is necessary for many reasons, but especially to strengthen trust and confidence in capitalism and in democracy. There is some reason to feel confident that we can turn back this tide of unethical behavior. Over the past four years, I have seen firsthand the awareness of this problem rise substantially. I've witnessed the enactment of laws and codes and the formation of organizations focusing attention on the topic. Let me close my remarks by suggesting that we all have a role in this battle, and that merely being against corruption is not enough. Instead, we all need to be fully engaged in the campaign to eradicate bribery and corruption. And we need to do it on multiple levels. Financially, by continuing to support leading advocacy groups. Politically, by encouraging our governments to stay focused on reform and by contributing our considerable knowledge and practical experience to the frontline efforts, and most especially being personally cognizant and changing the way we ourselves operate when confronted. I have mentioned some of the risks of not participating. Certainly they're very visible, they're legal, reputational, and otherwise. But at the same time, the benefits of engagement, I think, are substantial including the reduced cost of doing business, the ability to attract and retain principled employees, becoming the choice of ethically concerned customers and consumers, and in some nations, in fact, qualifying for reduced sanctions. And on a more fundamental plane, it's the right thing to do. So for these reasons, more and more employees and employers are involved in this endeavor, individually as well as part of professional or business organizations. Some of the largest brand names in the world are part of Pachi, Coca-Cola, Shell Oil, Merck, 
are all POTSI signatories. Let me give you a, a piece of information that surprised me when I first heard about it this last year. When I was going down through the list of, of signatories to POTSI, that in the great state of Texas, home to some of the world's largest and most preeminent corporations, home to more Fortune 500 companies than any other state of the union, Fleur stands alone in signing on to this vital initiative. Thus, I invite you to explore this topic further, and I invite you to join us in becoming Apache signatory. Edmund Burke, the 18th century Irish political leader and author, reminded all of us that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. We have before us, ladies and gentlemen, an opportunity to prevent the triumph of evil. And by joining together in common cause, I believe we can realize that opportunity. I thank you today for your attention, and I certainly would look forward to your questions and comments. Ladies and gentlemen, we're privileged today to have a special audience, and that is C-SPAN Radio. So I'm going to ask that you wait to ask your question, be sure that you're holding the microphone. And if you could raise your hands, those who have questions, so we get a general sense. Ray, you always have a good question. Good. And Mark Hildenbrandt, let's start right over here with Mark. Where's our microphones? Good. Okay. Uh, right. My name is Ray Miles, and I have a question that pertains to systemic aspects. Uh, on one side, how do you see influence on foreign governments facilitating corruption elsewhere? What comes to mind, for example, is China's $6 billion government aid to Congo, and thus raising the potential for corruption in Congo. And the other, we are at the verge of the new Bretton Woods kind of agreement on international financial system. We recall that, for example, Mohatir Mohammad was bitterly complaining about George Soros and the others during the Asian financial crisis about capital flight. We are seeing the same thing. Can the new Bretton Woods kind of thing architect the international financial system which will provide for coherent regulation of capital flight? Well, in answer to both your questions, first of all, make no mistake about it, corruption is exportable. Um, in fact, uh, what we see ourselves doing through Pachi is in addressing the supply side of corruption. We represent 140 companies that are the ones who are asked for bribes and who have to pay bribes in some, business, some locations to get business. And what we're saying is by taking an absolute zero-tolerance approach, making sure our employees know that there's a zero-tolerance approach and have the ability to back it up, we're cutting off that supply side. Uh, I've had many, many instances where I've either seen firsthand or suspected that international players in the, in the regions that we were working in were, in fact, making significant headway because of their ways that they did business and by the rules that they were playing by. As to the financial system, I think clearly there is some opportunity here to put some regulatory uh, uh, efforts around uh, capital flight. Uh, it's a very difficult subject, as you know, because there's so many things that play into it. Uh, but I think we've got to be very careful at, in, the, in the restrictions we put into such things. That we, it, clearly there are, are things that we can do around the corruption initiative. And that's one of the things that we've been doing and working with each of the, the uh, banks on financing of capital projects, which is the area that, of course, we are the closest to. Thank you. 
Sir Mark Hildenbrand, um, <clears throat> first let me say thanks for your, your leadership. It's always hard to be one of the first to walk down a hard road, so my compliments to you and your firm. My question, sir, in terms of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, is that a positive uh, initiative in terms of trying to address some of the things that you talked about? Is that helping us move the, the needle in the right direction? That's a very good question. I, I, I hear so many people, uh, compatriots in business, uh, often over the years have said, gee, you know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act really hinders us uh, from doing business and, and being a competitive force in certain areas. And I totally disagree with that. I think it's an outstanding law in which you can point to as a reason, even for your employees, as to why we can't do something. Certainly you have the ethical consideration, which I think trumps everything, but the law itself is very strong, uh, and we are now seeing significant enforcement of that law. That law, which was considered a naive approach towards corruption in the mid-90s, really formed the basis of the OECD Convention on Corruption in 1997 and in fact has been adopted across the globe. Uh, all of the OECD countries now have, have enacted some law around corruption and it largely follows the tenets of the FCPA. So I think it's been a, it, it, it's been a while getting uh, international acceptance but now it forms pretty much the basis on a, on a global uh, arena of how you combat corruption. We'll go over there with Buck Revell and then back over here. Alan, um, I want to ask you about Russia. Um, one, does any uh, company in Russia actually participate? And two, um, how does your organization uh, intend to deal with a kleptocracy where the government itself is part of the uh, initiating problem? Well, we, we do a fair amount of work in, in Russia. It's interesting, we've had, most of the work we have done prior to now has been with, through Western companies that operate in Russia. It's been the Chevrons of the world, it's uh, the Exxons who have been our base client and, and uh, working for them alongside the uh, indigenous uh, client. Now we are in fact working for Russian clients. We, we're doing a big refinery in Tartarstan. We're doing uh, a number of projects for other oil companies, chemical companies, and the like. Um, we, we do have a very significant challenge there at every level, uh, starting literally with, with your client list all the way down through suppliers and subcontractors that put your employees on a pretty constant pressure around that. Again, we battle that by awareness, um, a zero tolerance approach, and in fact, watching the money flow. Uh, if you watch the money flow and you get, a, get that right, you can, you can really make sure that you don't have problems in that regard. I have seen ourselves and other clients make a significant difference in this area uh, in certain in locales where we operate and participate because that zero tolerance approach, whether it's to corruption or another favorite topic of floor corporation is safety. Uh, transforms cultures in that regard because that's the way they have to play the game. Again, we've got the supply side cut off. And we form enough of a critical mass in terms of our ability to operate and execute that we have the ability to stand up to that. Uh, thank you. My name is Sammy Akimulero. I'm the president of the African Chamber of Commerce. Uh, my question to you, we have a whole lot of Chinese that are rushing into Africa today. Um, and I know that you have a presence in Africa. How do you manage to navigate against the corruption and bribery that people were also, that they always talked about that is engulfed in Africa? So it's a very good question. We, uh, 
even though we operate in Africa, we operate only in about three countries. Um, and, and the major reason for that is that there are certain countries there that we have found we just simply can't operate in uh, on, on a basis that we can compete uh, and on a basis that we can uh, keep our employees in a safe situation. Uh, that's sad to say because, in fact, it, 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 it creates a situation where the people of, uh, in those particular countries living in those sort of, of uh, circumstances, in fact, have a, have a reduced uh, living conditions, uh, reduced lifestyle and reduced income as, as a result of, this, of what goes on there. But the best that we can do in those cases where we just know that it's, it, it, it would be a losing battle is to just to stay away. Uh, to the extent that we get other companies to do the same thing, again, creates pressure on those governments. Now, Pachi has had, uh, in about four different cases, we've sat down and had forums with governments and with the leaders of those governments to talk about what it would take to put controls in place to be able to help combat uh, these issues. Uh, and we think that's been very, very successful. We, we did have discussions, not at a at a collective level, but at an individual level that I participated in a year and a half ago with uh, the President of Nigeria and talking about what could be done there as, as one of the countries that has one of the worst reputations in that arena. Kerry Manus, Baylor University. I'm curious, a, a company can be a signatory of, a, of an agreement, a, a company can have policies but how can, how can a CEO or how can the company be sure that ethical behavior is part of the fabric, part of the culture of the organization? Well, you know, we knew when we formed Pache and we had people signing on that there would be some that signed on just for the public relations value and that, in fact, didn't adhere to it. We've put a number of checks and balances in there. We have no real direct enforcement. We're not a regulatory body. Um, but we have taken people out of the signatory list and, and, in fact, are just having the ongoing discussions with two of them right now about how they get back in. Uh, but to your specific point, uh, again, it starts at the top, and it, it, you have to have a system that the employees can access, that they can understand, that they know the expectations. Uh, and that's challenging enough to do, uh, but we've done it, and, and a lot of the companies, all the companies that we work with in Pachi have, have gone and done a significant upgrade of their systems. Uh, but as difficult as it is to do, it's the easiest part. The toughest part is to enforce it. The toughest part is to make sure that you have a zero tolerance a pol policy and approach to it. And, and in, I've found that it doesn't take too many examples of that to really enforce that fabric. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I came up in a company where that was always expected. You know, the, the policies and the culture that was set long before I became CEO. Um, and so we find that... Uh, Interestingly enough, in any company, even those with the best cultures, you are going to have problems. People will succumb to temptation. It's part of, our, of human nature. The fact is you have to have the systems to catch it, and oftentimes the systems uh, are nothing more than the expectation of the people around that person. Uh, and that's how we catch most of our instances. We have great uh, abilities to audit, but most of our tips and most of our discoveries come from employees who notice the behavior and report it. And to me, that's, that's when you can really know that you've got the culture ingrained that can help you fight in, uh, this issue. Question right over there. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for your good presentation. Um, 
I'm a professor of global business at the University of Phoenix. There's an index of rating of uh, corruption among the countries, and uh, number one being the less corrupt and so on down the line. Uh, Finland is number one in the list, so the less corrupt country. Have we looked at uh, what do they do different that maybe we can learn something? Or are, are they members of Pachi? I'm talking about Finland. We, we don't have countries that are members of Pachi. Uh, we've, we've specifically targeted at, at companies. We have some countries that are affiliated, but one of the things that they do in Finland is they, they pay their, their uh, governmental employees rather well. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's more of a, of, a, of, a, of a deterrent than you might think. Um, and they have very strict and, and tough laws that get enforced. Um, they, you know, so their model is a very good one. A lot of, a lot of the corruption that happens through, through uh, public officials is because that individual sees that as the way to supplement and make a reasonable living. And it's almost considered in some countries as a right of that position. And, and that's, the, that's the toughest kind to stamp out. Recently, the World Affairs Council hosted the ambassador of Iraq, and he made a special appeal for more U.S. companies to come in and invest, and he said that the French and the British and the Germans were there. I wonder if you could give us a sense of corruption in Iraq and perhaps also in Afghanistan. Um, we, we do, we've had people working in Iraq for the last uh, almost six years, um, and have had, uh, you know, our client, though, has always been the U.S. government. And so we haven't had that particular issue on a client basis, but we have had it on a subcontractor basis. Uh, and again, it's a country that is very new in, and, in fact, still struggling to establish a, a, a cohesive set of laws and the rule of law. Uh, and until you have that, it makes it very difficult to really make significant progress against corruption. You'll notice that uh, in the natural resources side today, there are very few um, uh, U.S. companies operating yet even in Iraq. It's because of security, certainly, but it's also because of the issue of contractual law and, and uh, corruption. Uh, many European countries, believe it or not, were in fact some of the last to come on board. Uh, and, and, and if you, I gave you the example of Siemens. Uh, it wasn't very long ago that Germany and France both uh, treated bribery as a cost that could in fact be deducted on taxes. Uh, I'm not talking... Ten years ago, it was a lot less than that. Uh, so there is a, a, a serious issue in changing mindsets and changing practices, uh, and that is going to, uh, not just in Iraq, it's a, it's a global problem. Yes, thank you very much for your, for your comments. And uh, my question, oh, talk right into it, eh? Uh, my question has to do with the comment that you made about Lure being the only Fortune 500 company in Texas that has signed on to this, and I know you're not trying to say that the others uh, aren't able to, but I am curious if you've had some conversations with some of those, some of your fellow CEOs, and uh, to try to figure out what it is about the agreement that makes them unwilling to sign on, and indeed perhaps then some adjustments could uh, get some more. Thank but, you. Uh, thank you for that question. It allows me to, to do a little more advertising. Uh, interestingly enough, when we have that dialogue, um, most often than not in today's world, CEOs, and I, there, I know there are a couple of them out there, including my own, defer to their general counsel. And we find the road usually stops at the general counsel. Uh, we always have to e elevate it 
to the CEO and, and, and really press it as a leadership issue. Uh, companies today are afraid to sign on to anything that they think may give them more liability. It's just a, unfortunately a fact of life. Um, signing on to Pachi, and we've had it tested by several legal firms, brings you no more liability than you have today under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and any other laws of, of, of countries that you'd be working in. Um, they are also, in, in particularly in part of some of the oil companies, have said that uh, they already are signing on to the Global Compact and they don't want to create confusion. Uh, again, I press them pretty hard on that uh, because I don't believe it creates confusion. In fact, you have an ability to work in a network of well-informed companies uh, that have best practices and are very eager and willing to share those best practices. We at Fleur will quickly tell you that our practices around this area have improved dramatically from what we thought were good uh, since we've been members of Pachi. So there are benefits, and uh, if uh, any of you see any of those CEOs walking around, uh, you put in a word for me, because I'm not, I'm not giving up. Much Absolutely, Jim. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.